Lord, we praise you for the wonders of your love, and we pray that that love, that boundless love with which you have so loved the world would become more real and more ours today. Help us to discover that same love is the love with which you have loved each one of us. So open our hearts as we open your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. All right, would you all do me a favor and pull out your cell phones? I know it's kind of an unusual request at the start of a sermon. Let me ask you this. What would you say are the barriers that stand in the way or get in the way of you experiencing the love of God? The past couple of months we've been exploring and memorizing and praying Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, praying that for our own church, that we would be able to enter into the love of God, be rooted and established in it, that we would be able to grasp its boundless nature, and that we would be able to know it, to experience it for ourselves. So we've been unfolding the glorious height and width and depth and length of God's love, but I think as is obvious to all of us as we've been in this series, it's just not an automatic thing. We can declare that this is what the love of God is like, but that doesn't mean that it automatically becomes our experience, does it? So what would you say are some of the things that have, you have found to be barriers for you in your own experiencing of the love of God? I'm going to ask you just to uh, use your phone now as you are prayerfully reflecting on this. And if there is a word or a phrase that sums up a barrier that comes to your mind, would you just text that to this number? And uh, a few minutes later in the message, we're going to just scroll through some of these on the screen as a reminder for us of some of the things that, uh, that can be obstacles for us in experiencing the love of God. So just a word or a phrase about what stands as a barrier in experiencing God's love for you. And you're welcome to send more than one if you want to, if you just would send them separate. If you're watching online, we'd love to have you participate in this as well, wherever you are. If something comes to mind later on in the service or even later in the week, just feel free to shoot that to us. Uh, and that will be really helpful for us as uh, we move on into the series that we're going to be doing from here. So beginning this morning, we're going to be zeroing in on the third and culminating request that we find in Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesians chapter 3. So picking up with the on-ramp from the previous verse, so we have the context, Paul prays that we would have the power together with all of the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then in verse 19 he says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So now what is, what in the world is Paul talking about when he talks about a love that, or a yeah, love and a knowing of that love that surpasses knowledge. Well, it doesn't mean that this is a love that is beyond our knowing at all, that we're just left to guess. This, this can't be the agnostics kind of uh, key verse, uh, because actually Paul is praying for us that we would be able to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So we have, as you know from what the scriptures teach and is what we've been talking about, we have a trustworthy revelation of the love of God in the pages of scripture which describe and define God's love for us. And we also have the incarnation of the love of God in the life, the death, and the resurrection 
of Jesus, which puts the love of God on display and it makes it available to us. So Paul isn't saying that this, God's love for us is something we just cannot know. He's not saying that at all. There are two things that I think he is meaning to communicate in this. First, and rather obviously, knowing the love of God is just beyond the capacity of any human being. There is no way that a finite being can get his or her arms around something that's infinite. But I think even more than that, Paul is meaning to imply that the love of God is wider than just head knowledge. It's, it's more than just an informational knowing. There's more to it than that, that God intends us to, to uh, have be part of our experience. God intends for us to know his love in a personal and in an experiential way. So Paul elaborates on this in the the next phrase. He's saying, here's here's more of what I mean when I'm talking about us knowing this love that surpasses knowledge. He prays that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And this is also getting at two ideas, I think. One is that Paul is praying for God to fill us full with his presence. In two more chapters, in verse 18, he's going to pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit So there's a sense in which we can have the Spirit, but God's desire is that we would continue to be filled by his presence. But then also he's praying for God to fulfill in us his purposes for us when he called us. This comes through in in a number of different places in the New Testament, but Romans chapter 8, verse 29 is one of the great examples of that, where he says, those that God foreknew, he also predestined for this reason, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So for us to know the love of God more fully is in part for us to be transformed by the love of God as God fulfills his purposes in us. God intends that we would know his love in a way that isn't only personal and experiential, but is also transformational. To know the love of God in a way that shapes and controls our lives. This, of course, is going to anticipate the whole second part and the larger part of our focus on love as we, as we will move uh, eventually from focusing on being loved to, and, and being loved deeply to loving others deeply. Is that our own experience of the love of God would, would turn us into lovers of the people that God places around us. So to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge is to know God's love personally, experientially, and transformationally in a way that actually is shaping who we are. So let me just pause right there. Think about your own relationship with Christ. Are those words that you would use to describe your own experience of the love of God, your own understanding of it, encounter with it? Is your knowing of God's love personal? Is your knowing of God's love experiential? Is your knowing of God's love transformational? Has it changed you? Lord, we just pause to pray now that that would be the case, that you, by your spirit, in our inner being, would strengthen and empower us that we might know this love that surpasses knowledge and that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you. Well, there are all kinds of things that get in the way of our experiencing God's love in that sort of personal and and experiential and life-transforming way, aren't there? And that's the focus of the next part of where we're going in our preaching. And as we begin this morning, a new sort of series within a series. We want this to be a practical kind of Sunday morning workshop approach to some of these many barriers 
that get in the way of our experiencing the love of God. So let me just pause here and let's see some of the things that you all have identified and texted in as barriers that you have found stand in the way of your experiencing God's love. Wow, these are really powerful. I wish we had the opportunity to just scroll through all these. I know even just in first service, we received over 100, so we don't have time to do that this morning. But thank you for sending these in because these will really significantly shape the series as we go forward from here. These will be some of the things we'll be addressing directly. So thank you for your candor with us and thanks for helping to to shape this. So I want to use the rest of the message this morning to address one specific barrier to our experiencing the love of God that may surprise you or at least may cause you to scratch your head a bit. For some of us, this will be very familiar territory, but for others of us, this may be uh, something of a new thought. But I believe that it is a bedrock spiritual issue and that it is actually related to every other one of the barriers that we will be looking at and wrestling with and, and is directly connected to so many of the ones that you just texted in and named. We, have, uh, we find this introduced to us in John chapter 10, verse 10 which says, Jesus speaking, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So for two months now, we've been focusing on one side of this equation, the love side, this incredible love that God has for us. But this morning, we're going to be focusing on the other side of this equation that Jesus puts in front of us. Jesus teaches us, just as God is conspiring each day to bring us into his love, the evil one is conspiring each day to rob us of God's love for us. Jesus says he stands at the door and he knocks and invites us to open the door to him. And when we do, we can step into a relationship with him. But Jesus also says in this passage that while he's standing at the door, the thief is standing at the window and trying to get in, eager to rob us of what Jesus has for us. The evil one. Jesus speaks of him when he teaches us to pray. At this point now in the translation world of the New Testament, most of the translations have gone to understand that Jesus' petition in the Lord's Prayer is not just deliver us from evil, but is specifically deliver us from the evil one. The evil one is an angelic being who was created by God, but who rebelled against God and who is now bent upon robbing us of God's best for us. In the pages of scripture, we see him also called the devil, Satan, the serpent, the accuser, the destroyer. It is fascinating to see the collection of words that are used in the Bible to describe how Satan goes about seeking to steal and to kill and to destroy. These are all words that you would find if you were to open a thesaurus and look for synonyms of the word cunning or craftiness These are all words that you would find on that page. They describe artful subterfuge and stealthy sabotage. We're told in the New Testament that he prowls, schemes, he has designs, and he sets snares. This is the original wily coyote that we are talking about. So think about what this means. We don't just have an invisible God who is at work in our lives, whose invisibility poses challenges for every one of us as people of faith. But we also have to acknowledge now that, we, that there is an invisible evil spirit at work who seeks to remain in the shadows and not to be seen 
but who is endlessly scheming to vandalize God's love for us. Now think about what this means for a second. This is really significant, acknowledging the presence of the evil one in our spiritual experience. Think about this as just as an example. If, if I'm walking along and, and suddenly I'm tripped and I fall flat on my face and I turn around and I see only one person standing behind me, well then who am, who am I going to think tripped me? That one person, right? But what if now, instead of looking over there and seeing just one person, what if I see two people? Now who will I blame? Suddenly there's a completely different element that's introduced in the way that I think about, well, what about this pain or suffering or difficulty or struggle that I'm experiencing in my spiritual life? Maybe I can't lay all of the blame for that at God's feet. In fact, the scripture says we cannot. The scriptures call us to take seriously that we have an enemy who is actively scheming and conspiring against us. This week I had a chance to go through the scriptures and to read every passage that had to do with the evil one in some way. And, to, and also that describes the ways that he works. And it's actually a really uh, fascinating and fruitful study. It's something that I would uh, commend to you as being worth your while. So here's a sampling of some of the passages that give us insight into some of the ways that the evil one schemes to and conspires against us and to, to separate us from the love of God. And I want you to just notice, as I am thinking about this list that's coming up, how many of these things are directly connected to the barriers that you've already identified that stand in the way of your own experience of the love of God. The evil one calls God's trustworthiness into question. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other creatures the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? He blinds minds to the truth of who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We're told that he makes it difficult for people to believe the upside-down, inside-out nature of the gospel that we are called into. Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. He shifts people's minds from God's perspective and focusing on those things, on love and trust and, and hope and eternity, to the world's perspective, self and competition and ambition and here and now concerns. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. We're told the evil one accuses people with their failures and their shortcomings and keeps them trapped in guilt and shame, convincing them that they are disqualified from the love of God. Many of your comments reflected this. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Look who's behind this. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, he has been hurled down. And he uses pain and suffering in our life to cause us to call God's faithfulness and his trustworthiness into question. Revelation chapter 2. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution. Be faithful, even to the point of death, if it should come to that, and I will give you the crown of life. 
So part of what all of this means is that there is another and deeper spiritual issue behind almost every one of the more obvious spiritual issues that we are wrestling with. But it is one to which most of us are blind. I think of the multiple years when I was an atheist. During that time, I would have told you, because I believed it, that the main reason that I wasn't a follower of Christ is because I had a number of intellectual objections for which I didn't feel like there were satisfactory answers. It's only years later, as I look back on that experience of being an atheist, that I realized that while those objections were real, and I do think that there are things we need to wrestle through, legitimate uh, objections that we have to wrestle through to become followers of Christ, I realized the real reason that I wasn't moving towards God was because I was so hesitant to let go of control of my life, and I wanted to have myself equal to God. I didn't want to have to answer to God for how I was living my life. I believe it is easy for us to dismiss the impact and even the reality of the evil one, but we do that at our spiritual peril. Now, certainly it is possible to overstate the role of the evil one as well and to elevate him as though he were a power equal with God, which is absolutely not the case. But I think most of us in the U.S., and especially educated people, are prone to the opposite error, which is to feel a little bit embarrassed about acknowledging that there is such a creature as the devil. And as a result of our awkwardness to minimize his role in, in driving us apart from God and in robbing us of God's best for us. So let me just stop here and ask you, as you think about your own spiritual struggles, are there places where you think some of the things that you've named or maybe identified as we paused and prayed, are there places you think maybe the scheming of the evil one could contribute to that barrier to your experiencing the love of God? So what if, given what we've just read about the evil one's scheming, what if every time we found ourselves in conflict with someone, we stopped right then and asked for protection from the evil one? What if when we found ourselves doubting the goodness of God because of the brokenness of this world or suffering that we ourselves are undergoing in our own lives, what if we just ask God to stand between us and the evil one and to keep us from being blinded? What if when we found ourselves suddenly doubting this whole Christianity thing, what if we thought in that moment to offer a prayer just asking God to protect us from the one whose job description is to steal what God is seeking to give us? What if when we felt dark and we felt depressed or anxious, what if in addition to asking God for light and hope and seeking help from our Christian friends and inviting them into that darkness, what if we also ask God in that moment to protect us from the one who wants nothing more than to bring us farther down into the darkness? And what if these were the sorts of prayers we were praying for one another? Now, don't get me wrong. Not all conflict or doubt or depression or fear or shame comes directly from the evil one. Sometimes we are the source. Sometimes other people are the source. But all of it is touched by him. All of it. In his brilliant book, The, the Screwtape Letters, uh, which if you haven't read or reread recently, I would really encourage you to do that. C.S. Lewis imagines a senior demon giving instructions to a junior demon about how to plague the life of a human being who has been assigned to him. The book ends when the man that this demon is scheming against, who has become a Christian in spite of this junior demon's 
best efforts. This man is killed in a bombing raid during World War II and is ushered immediately into God's presence in heaven. Lewis imagines that moment from hell's perspective. The senior demon writes to his underling, How well I know what happened at that instant when they snatched him from you. There was a sudden clearing of his eyes, was there not? As he saw you for the first time and recognized the part that you had had in him and knew that you had it no longer. Just think what he felt at that moment, as if a scab had fallen from an old sore, as if he were emerging from a hideous, crusty skin disease, as if once and for all he wriggled out of a defiled, wet, clinging garment. I wonder how quick you are to dismiss the wiles of the evil one. And I wonder how that may add to your vulnerability to the evil one's attacks. The first step in standing against the schemes of the evil one is to recognize them. This is where Paul takes us in his classic passage on spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He tells us that we are caught in a crossfire in a spiritual battle between our good God and the evil one. Verse 3, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. But Paul says that even though we find ourselves in a battle, we are not left weaponless. And the weapons that we have are not powerless. Verse 4, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Just look at how beautifully this passage in 2 Corinthians 10 fits together with the prayer that we have been praying for one another. As Paul prays for God's strength and power to be released in order for us to enter into and understand and experience God's love. He prays that we would be strengthened with power so that Christ could dwell in our hearts and we could be rooted and established in love. And he prays that we may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The weapons that we fight with have God-given power to demolish strongholds. A stronghold was the fortified building or the tower that stood at the center of a walled city in the ancient world. And whether with battering rams or scaling ladders or mobile towers or catapults, it was always, the stronghold was always the target in ancient warfare. If the stronghold was taken, the battle was over. Paul imagines that the center of human society and also the center of each human heart are places where the evil one is holding sway, robbing us of truth and of trust and of hope and preventing us from fully experiencing the love of God for us. Paul tells us we don't just have little weapons to shoot back with from time to time, little slingshots or arrows. We don't even merely have weapons that would allow us to breach the wall of the walled city. He tells us that in Christ and by his spirit, we have weapons to defeat the stronghold. Here again, you see the parallel with our prayer passage, the passage we're looking at today. I pray that you may have power to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So the beginning point is we are called to recognize that the evil one is part of our spiritual struggles. And now in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul unfolds the primary strategy that we have 
to fight back against the schemes of the evil one once we recognize them. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. These arguments that Paul refers to are the reasoning and the rationalizing that have us convinced our thoughts are right just because we are the ones thinking them. And pretensions are literally raised up ramparts. They are the versions of reality that we like to believe that have us at the center, that have us lifting ourselves up and considering ourselves the final arbiter of truth when it comes to all things spiritual. And here's the strategy of the resistance fighters fighting against the occupying army. We are to demolish the communication network, cut the wires, cut off every misleading message, every version of reality that has us at the center and, and elevates us as the final authority and questions or resists or redefines God. We are to demolish the communication network and we are to take captive. That means to recognize it as the enemy scheming and fight against it and to Take it as a prisoner of war. Every thought, every notion, every whispered hint, every subtle scheme that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and to make it obedient to Christ. We are to bring it back around. Whatever that notion or thought is, we are to bring it back around so that it lines up with a way of making sense of reality that has Jesus on the throne. Don't tell him I gave away his secret strategy, but I believe that the evil one's primary scheme is both simple and predictable. All he does is put his weight behind our already existing propensities as fallen human beings. Our propensities to hold grudges or consider ourselves more important than others or see the Christian life as a bunch of rules to keep or doubt a God that we can't see, or give up on hope because life is so overwhelming, or be suspicious about anything that claims to be unconditional love, or to fixate on how God could take away our suffering, but he doesn't, or any of a hundred other ways of thinking that don't line up with what is real and true. It's how we think, it's how we see ourselves and think about others and make sense of the world and understand God that is the main target of the enemy. And he just presses on those. He finds the thoughts already in our minds and just leans on them and adds his weight to them. Our thoughts are not the only place, but they are the primary place where the evil one attacks. So let me leave us with an example of what it looks like to be a kingdom resistance fighter and to fight back against the occupying forces who are sabotaging our thoughts. Two days ago, Andrew Brunson spoke at Presbyterian. Some of us had a chance to hear him speak. It was really a powerful experience. He is the EPC missionary who was imprisoned on false charges for two years in Turkey. He shared with us his experience, that his experience in prison was absolutely devastating, particularly so because he believed that God promised him to release him on a certain day shortly after he was arrested. And when God didn't, and when that day came and went, he started doubting God, and he soon lost sight of God completely. He had a nearly total breakdown. He was swallowed up by fear, anxiety, panic, depression, became suicidal. But as Paul says to Timothy, 
Even when we are faithless, God will remain faithful. In his book, God's Hostage, Andrew tells of the time when as he, in this incredibly dark time, as he neared the end of his first year in prison and the threat of a, prison, of a longer prison term hung over his head. And this is what he writes. I realized I could not do much to fight for my freedom, but I could fight for my faith. If I didn't survive spiritually, I knew I would lose everything. I had spent so many hours pacing the courtyard or lying in my bunk, accusing God, confused, often angry and offended at him. But now I made a solemn decision and announced it to God. Obviously, obviously one prompted by God's spirit. Whatever you do or do not do, I will follow you. If you don't speak, I'll follow you. If you don't let me sense your presence, still, I will follow you. If you don't show me your gentleness or your kindness, I will follow you. If you leave me in prison, I will follow you. I made a decision. I will not give up. I may be terrified. I may be weak. I may be broken. But I'm going to hold on. I may look... I will look to Jesus and not away from him. I will run to Jesus, or if necessary, I will crawl to Jesus. A few days later, he writes this. Why did God allow me to be deceived into thinking that I would be quickly released? Were God's promises blocked? Why had he withheld any sense of his presence? Why did he let me be broken so completely? These questions were suffocating my relationship with God. I had read a book by Dan Bauman in which he explained how after suffering a great disappointment with God, he locked away his questions in an imaginary box. I decided to do the same thing. God, I prayed as I imagined myself sealing the lid shut. I am locking these questions away. I'm not going to ask them anymore. I'm not going to demand answers. I don't understand. I'm confused and I'm hurt. But these questions and doubts will remain in this box until another time. You can open this box if you want to, God, but I'm leaving it sealed. I don't need the answers to these questions in order to continue my relationship with you. From this point on, he writes, whenever one of these questions came to my mind, I would banish it in my box. A few weeks after that, he says, most unusual of all, I started dancing. I'd been reading about Richard Vermbrand, a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned and tortured for 14 years under the communist regime. He took Jesus' words, rejoice and be exceeding glad when people insult you and persecute you, as a direct command, and he chose to rejoice by dancing in his prison cell. I decided to do the same. I felt no joy and my spirits were sad, but each day, for a minimum of five minutes, I would leap around the courtyard no matter how much I didn't feel like doing it. It was an act of the will. A few weeks later, Andrew learned that he would likely be sentenced to three life sentences in solitary confinement without the possibility of parole. He writes, from this very dark time came one of my most important victories. I was walking round and round in the courtyard, overwhelmed by the idea of my years stretching out in lonely silence as I wasted away. I opened my mouth to pray, to pour out my feelings, but instead of accusation or complaint, something entirely different came out. You are worthy. Worthy of my all. I started to sing these words over and over. In my heart, heartache, I was declaring that Jesus was worthy of whatever I may suffer, and as I did, more words came. But my heart 
faints, drowned in sorrow, overwhelmed, make me like you, cross-bearer, persevering, faithful to the end. When I stopped singing, the song carried on, growing within me with new verses. For a couple of days, I started carrying it around with me, and eventually I wrote it down. I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets from cowardice, things left undone, to hear you say, well done, my faithful friend. Now enter your reward, Jesus, my joy. You are the prize that I'm running for. From then on, he writes, I sang my song to God every day. I want to share with you something that was really interesting. Um, two or three days ago, I woke up and discovered, as I was been immersed in these passages of Scripture, I woke up realizing that I'd just been having a unique dream. In the dream, I was with a group of people in the desert, and all of a sudden we were surrounded by armed men who were circling us in jeeps. They grabbed one of the group from our party and chained him with thick chains, put his arms behind his back, chained them to his feet, and then shoved him over onto his back on the rock. It was incredibly painful. In that moment, I looked over, and far, far away, all the way out in the miragey part of a desert in the far distance, I saw the silhouette of Jesus. And suddenly, instantaneously, Jesus was in our midst. The man's chains were all removed, and the enemy was God, uh, gone. Everything slowed. Jesus took the man by his shoulders, leaned forward, and kissed his forehead. And then suddenly he was off. You could see a silhouette in the far distance, and he was on his way to rescue someone else. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's other great passage on spiritual battle, this is what Paul writes. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in these evil days. And having done all, to stand firm. Lord, again, we crown you king. And again, we invite your sweeping, transforming, loving rule. Come and in your love and in your power, establish your kingdom in our hearts and in this world, we pray.